0: The years have all passed, we've reached modern times. The Nazis have come with their Nazi war crimes. Yes, the power was there, the power was found. Six million people have heard that same sound, that old knock on the door, knock on the door. Here they come to take one more Hello and welcome more. to another uh, episode of the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, I am continuing my look at 20th century women writers from the United States in this series, calling this informally 20th century girls. So I'm glad you're joining us, joining me today. Um, This episode will be beginning a series where I'll be looking at the works of Mary McCarthy. And this will probably continue through both Library of America volumes of of mary mccarthy's fiction writing i don't think we have a volume of non-fiction writing but i wouldn't be surprised to see that coming out soon these are fairly recent um editions in fact i got them through my normal subscription not um buying back uh editions this was their 290th publication i think they're in their 330s or something now so it, it's only a few years ago uh 2017 that this volume was put together um and this volume has four novels and, and two, eight short stories, like uh, one collection of short stories and uh, four uncollected stories. The novels are The Company She Keeps, The Oasis, The Grows of Academe, and A Charmed Life. The stories are from Cast a Cold Eye, and then we have some of her uncollected stories. All of this work was published between 1942 and 1963, although I think all four of the novels were published in the 40s and 50s. So we don't have any of her 1960 writings yet. Um, In this episode, I'm going to talk about the first half or so of The Company She Keeps. Um, The Company She Keeps, uh, her first novel, it was written at the encouragement of Edmund Wilson, who was her husband at her time, of course, a famous... Uh, American writer, and actually, as I understand it, fairly key to the concept behind the Library of America, his, his, his works, his criticism has been collected in there uh, earlier. Um, this, um, in a course published in 1942, it, it reads like six short stories, and if you maybe if you pick up any one of these stories, it kind of works. They kind of stand on their own. And that's what may strike people as a bit odd about this, this novel. There's not an overall plot, except that it's following this character. Her name is uh, Meg Sargent, Margaret Sargent. Here's her name. We don't actually learn her name until the second story. In the first story, it's just, um, just. Uh, I think she's just addressed as she pretty much th- throughout it. But it doesn't take you long to figure out that. This is actually pretty key to the point Mary McCarthy is trying to make in this novel, which is about the liquidity of modern li- life and the liquidity of, of even identity and how the, the, um, the, the number of choices available, the, the freedoms, the increasing freedoms available to, to women and their limitations are, are they're still there in the background. But um, how this. Um, Makes our own identity quite liquid. That—that's what I think her main point is. And if you read the foreword to the novel, before reading any of the stories, you may not quite understand what she's trying to get at. But after you read it and go back to it, it it's pretty clear what she's trying to do. Um, so that's why I'm kind of um, putting the lead up front here on on what I think the story's uh, key the story's key significance is. So let me read a little bit of her little foreword. It's only a page long. When did you last have it? The author adjourns the distracted heroine who is fumbling in her spiritual pocketbook for a missing object for the ordinary, indispensable self that has somehow got mislaid. It is a case of lost identity. The author and the reader together accompany the hero back over her life's itinerary, pausing occasionally to ask, was it here? Do you still have it at this point? And suspecting, in spite of her protest, that perhaps she never took it with her at all when she started off in the morning. This is not only scenes and persons and points of view that are revisited the intimate she the affectionate diminutive you the thin abstract autobiographical i if the author is moved to ask can all these be the same person why is that question that both the heroine and the author are up against for the search is not conclusive there's no deciding which of these personalities is the real one the home address of the self like the soul is not to be found in the book Um, and that's about half of this forward The, the beginning kind of sets up this this, you know, the lost pocketbook as being a metaphor for the lost identity. <clears throat> now, this is is the problem of liquid modernity. I've I've talked about this concept of liquid modernity a lot. I did it when I wrote about Philip Dick, and some of it did show up in the Philip Dick podcast. And I've I've come across it again. But as you get deeper into the twentieth century, into to you know, you're less dealing with. Um, like, like in the turn of the century, we dealt with these big titans of, of labor versus capital or the farmer versus the railroad. Those kind of themes that were in the naturalistic writers of Jack London and, and, and Frank Norris. Um, and instead we're getting really this, this kind of the dubiousness of, of even identity and, and who we are. And I, I think that's a product of this liquid world. Now the guy who kind of I get this from is a sociologist and I think he's still alive, but he must be super, super old, Zygmunt Bauman and he he publishes a lot of little books all about this and other themes. Um, One of his best, I think, and one of my favorite is Wasted Lives, which is very, very useful um, sociological commentary on the present day. But he's kind of most famous these days for the liquid modernity stuff, right? And the idea there is, like, things are changing so fast that we're really, you know, of course, history's always changed, but it's never changed quite at this rate, so we end up with this feeling that we're kind of standing on on quicksand and there's kind of this feeling of liquidity everywhere around us and this becomes very disconcerting, very um, um, almost damaging to any kind of stable identity we may want to have or we think we have, right? And so the end result in this story is we have six distinct, in this novel, six distinct short stories, each of which could stand on its own and do at times seem to be telling the story of a different woman, They're, they're not connected. There's almost no connection except the character's name. Um, you know, you can kind of piece together a few things, but I would say, you know, that's not even the point. The point is, you know, that these are six distinct people, um, even though it's the same character's name, and that is uh, the challenge I think Mary McCarthy is trying to get at. Um, you know, when she studies things like work, she studies things like politics and relationships. Those are, I guess, the three things she kind of focuses on in in this novel, you know, is, is relationships. Um, sexuality is, is certainly a big part of that. Um, one story is about an affair. The other is about a one-night stand. Um, and we see her with several different uh, suitors, potential husbands throughout the novel, none you know, most of them they don't none of them work out really we have a story really about her her jobs and actually a couple stories about her work again nothing there kind of works out she seems to kind of be drifting from job to job and what was the third one oh her politics right because we we see a, a a woman playing with radical politics you know but where she gets there it's, we're not really clear on how she got to those radical politics it's you know, it's, it seems to be almost an arbitrary choice at times. And again, it's something that doesn't really stick um, very firmly in who she is. This is the po- political stuff is going to be a thing that comes up also in Oasis, which is all about kind of the pettiness and, and capriciousness and arbitrariness of, of radical politics in, in the United States. So that's kind of my overall introduction to this. To this story, I'm going to look at the first four stories um, in this because they do cover about 100 pages. The the second set, this last two stories, the one is quite long. It's actually a little novella, uh, but I'll cover the other um, 100 pages. The second episode, the first is called "Cruel and Barbarous Treatment," and it's about a woman having an affair who and she decides to leave her husband, and it's just about what's in her mind as she is trying to. Um, think about what it means to be an adulteress, what it means to be a wife while also having a lover and and her her struggles with that. It's actually I think one of the best examinations I've ever come across of a of an affair from the adulterer's point of view because it, it you know this this tension between feeling something's missing, a dissatisfaction in one's life, uh, maybe a needs not being met or whatever it might be that doesn't, you know, and at the same time deeply loving Your spouse, and and you know, it's so easy to fall into the kind of the Jerry Springer narrative that if you you know sleep with the the woman next door, you sleep with your, your your wife's sister, you must be a horrible person, and you must not love the person you were committed to, and that that doesn't seem to be the case most of the time. I mean, why else do people go through such lengths to cover up affairs? It's it's not because they you know they're interested in in. It's not because they hate their spouse. It seems they're trying to protect them and trying to um, separate that, that part of their life from something else that they find very important. Right? It's not a, um, and, and I, I just think that gets missed a lot in, in the way we, especially with the Jerry Springer or the daytime talk show circuit. You know, this public shaming of of the adulterers. I, I think that's quite unfair. Um, but so I really like that story. Then we have Rogues Gallery, which picks up with Meg sometime later. Again, we don't have a clear chronology. We just see her at different places in her life. Uh, she's having a job with a, a gallery owner who's basically a con artist, and so we get a little fun with this, like the modern economy and and it's kind of it's all built on a house of cards. You know, I think there's kind of a metaphor in this story, Rogues Gallery, about how the modern economy kind of is uh, just. Sh- Shifting money around on an imaginary um, game board or something, and you know it's all could fall apart at any moment if anyone just could expose the truth, right? Uh, The third one is the man in the Brooks Brothers shirt, which, like, like I think the cruel and barbarous treatment is a very, very great window into an affair. The man in the Brooks Brothers shirt is a really, really great look at the kind of the the one night stand and the emotions involved in that. the the one night stand and we even got a a walk of shame kind of moment here which is really really great um well done and it's it's a fairly long story then we got the genial host which to be honest was my least favorite of these six little stories but it's basically about uh, meg going to this party uh with a man who she doesn't really like and no one really likes but he likes to surround himself with popular you know with famous people and and to to be out there but he's just kind of a do. She's just kind of a horribly boring person, and you know, and, and it's about her response to that. So those are the four stories in the first half of of the novel. They're all pretty good. I, like, I think the genial host didn't grab me as much as the other three did, but those sort four of street wow, they're they're really wonderful stories. Uh, I really regret not coming across Mary McCarthy uh, earlier. She's one of those novelists you don't really get in. Your literature courses so much right um, at least i never was exposed to her until literally library of america gave me this volume i, I didn't really even know she existed before this so i was um first a bit hesitant to pick up her stories because i didn't really know what i was getting into i knew i wanted to do 20th century writers and she seemed to fit the period of time i wanted to talk about in fact there's a lot of overlap between her life and the and her writing especially in this volume and the period we studied in the Future's female anthology which covers mostly the 30 the 40s 50s and 60s but anyways i was a bit hesitant to pick it up i actually scanned through it a little bit this summer um, but you know it's one of the volumes i brought to china really committed to trying to understand her because um, i would lobby get into themes of mccarthyism no relation, as far as I know, in the name. Um, she was right about it in Groves of Academe. Into modern sexuality, that was something I was really excited about, getting into um, kind of the new woman, the, the, the feminist movement, and second-wave feminism, and, and liberalism a bit. It's, you know, it's among leftist circles, being a liberal is kind of a dirty word these days, but um, it was a dominant political position throughout much of the middle of the century, during the kind of the New Deal consensus era. And it, it's important that we kind of look at that and how it related to things like second wave feminism and the sexual revolution and and growing the, the establishment of freedoms that many of us take take for granted now. Right. The, the sexual revolution was it had its radical side, but its achievements really do owe a lot, I think, to the to the liberals. So I, I think it's. Um, dangerous to kind of make that too much of a dirty word without appreciating its historical contribution, especially in this period in in history, Um, when you did have kind of the emerging conservative movement at war with uh, the radical left, right, Stalinism still being kind of a popular movement, not fully uh, discredited, especially in the 40s when Soviet Union was an ally, the American left still had that kind of awe of Stalin before the Khrushchev speech. Uh, where we started getting more knowledge, more information about about what Stalinism really was like on the ground in Russia. But, anyways, uh, in that period, the real liberals I think played a very key role in in really earning some really concrete freedoms. I think the best evidence of that might be the sexual revolution or certain aspects of certain achievements of the feminist movement. Certainly, gay liberation is going to come out of that. So, all of those movements had their radical elements, of course, and. and and I don't want to discredit those radical visions either because I'm kind of on the side of those radical visions, but there's something to be said about the achievement of people of McCarthy's standpoint, a little bit more skeptical of, of the radical left. Okay, so start uh, with cruel and barbarous treatment. This, As this story begins, again, I don't think we ever get Meg's age at any point. Um, she must be fairly young because... In the man with the Brooks Brothers shirt. I actually who knows, even knows the chronology of some of these. I'm not even sure if they overlap or, or what's going on. They're generally chronological, I guess. But I don't know. I, I just think it's so brilliant the way she constructed this life as distinct, discrete um episodes. Um you know, and this is I'm thinking about like TV today, where you got I mean the old way of television was like the sitcom version or where each episode is a distinct narrative and you got the same characters in the same place. So everyone kind of knows what to expect, but each episode is standalone, right? And now with the, the, the prestige television revolution at Netflix, you get narrative television a lot more where people binge and people can go back and watch to pick details. So this allows like the long form narrative, which has been revolutionary. I to think in storytelling on the small screen and and sometimes doing better than the big screen because you got that time to develop character to have complicated plots and it has it has its dangers as well But I think overall it's quite awesome uh, a Really great development, but McCarthy's doing something even different where she has An episodic structure, but you're not even in the same place every time It's never a return to some norm or a return to normalcy at the end It's she's always in a totally different place Which is why you could read this as six distinct short stories and unless, except for the name and a few elements maybe in the last story, which is kind of a recap of some things, you really don't um, necessarily feel you're talking to the same character, right? So what I think is kind of cool about this is in this first chapter, Cruel and Barbarous Treatment, she doesn't even give a name for, she doesn't even give uh, Margaret Sargent's name. She's just her. She's just essentially the adulteress. the 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 husband is just... Him, the boyfriend is just the young man, right? And at times she she has various she gives herself various titles, or it's all it's third person narrative. So the narrator gives her various um, titles as well, but it's always the man, her, um, the femme fatale, the young divorcee, uh, on and on. And you know we're we're dealing with just the generic adulteress, but it's all an internal look at her changing perspective about her her affair, what it meant, and how it evolved into her becoming a divorcee, right? That wasn't her intention early on, it doesn't seem, to me anyways. But, you know, she's, she's not even consistent within this one chapter in her attitude about what this affair means. Now, this story does seem to give you this impression that there are sort of stages or Um, that the adulteress is supposed to go through, right? Expected stages. For instance, um, just to read from the very first page, to confess one's aspirations might be in the end to publicize one's failures. Once a solid understanding had been reached, there followed a short intermission of ritual bashfulness in which both parties awkwardly participated and then came the announcement. And we actually see her character go through these stages of the announcement and then ultimately leading to the divorce. And then of course, the breakup of the relationship with the young man, because that's that's not going to stick either. So she ends up losing her husband and, and the young man, which I think is not not surprising. Um, now, one thing I think is really important here is her internal perspective on on why she's doing it. Maybe we don't get a clear answer of why she's doing it, but we know why she's not. She's not doing it to be cruel to her husband, to be to be vicious. There's something else lacking uh, in her, and I don't. For me, it's it's never clearly defined. Very much, And I think that's, again, the point of the story is this kind of liquidity, this loss of identity. Of course, part of identity is, is our goals and our desires and our, and our plans. And if we can't even have those, how can we really have a strong identity? Um, so it, it just becomes, becomes sort of lost in the, in the overall torrent of, of life in the modern world. Um, but anyways, let's just read a little bit more. But with the extramarital courtship, the deception was prolonged where it had been ephemeral, necessary where it had been frivolous, conspiratorial where it had been lonely. It was, in short, serious where it had been dil- dilettantish. That is, that, that it was accompanied by feelings of guilt, by sharp and genuine revulsions, only complicated and deepened its delights, by abrasing the sensibilities and by imposing a sense of outlawry and cons- cons- consequent mutual dependence upon the lovers. But what this interlude of deception gave her, above all, she recognized, was an opportunity unparalleled in her experience for exercising feelings of superiority over others. For her husband, she had she, she believed only sympathy and compunction. She had no fun. She told the young man out of putting horns on her darlings' heads, and never for a moment she said did he appear to her the comic figure of the cuckolded husband that one saw on the stage. The young man assured her that this his own sentiments were equally delicate, for that the wrong man he felt the most profound respect tinged with consideration. It was as if the mere act of betraying her husband, she had adequately bested him. It was a super, super togatory for her to gloat. And if she gloated at all, it was over her fine restraint and not gloating over the integrity of her moral sense." Um, end quote. Um, it goes on like this. In fact, the whole story is sort of like this um, about her feelings of love, her feelings of, of for both the young man and the husband. Her, her feeling of duty and obligation to certain social norms, one of which is kind of the confession and all that. Uh, so she kind of does, is pulled along these stages in, in kind of a in a way where she doesn't seem to have that much agency. Um, but, I mean, just the the inward look and the chaoticness of the inward look. I mean, it's, Mary McCarthy is very, you know, she's at no point saying, I had an affair because my husband you know did some this to me or he offended me or he insulted me at breakfast one day so i had an affair to get back to him it's never that it's it's very very hard to i think dissect this and go back and to to assign motive to it and that's what makes it kind of brilliant and i think it's it's true to life i think it's it is how these things emerge the, these kinds of affairs and the come forth they're not out of viciousness in most cases they're, they're out of something something else and you know I don't know there, there's a lot I think to maybe unpack here but that would take a long time I mean the whole story is very very dense in, in meaning but it's so chaotic and there's so much change within this you just get this overall feeling of liquidity in it and I love it it's, it's a great experience to read but it, for that it makes it kind of hard to perhaps interpret. Um, outside of saying she is speaking on this kind of the, the, the conflicted emotions that are within us all the time that are constantly changing as our experiences changes, as we're coming to terms with social expectation, um, as we're coming to terms with our feelings of love for other people, and, and all that just kind of gets all mixed up uh, emotionally. So, second story, Rogue's Gallery. We immediately shift to a first-person narration. This is something that Mary McCarthy admitted she was going to do in the foreword, where she said, basically tells us that we're not going to have a singular voice throughout here. We're going to have she, you, and I, um, different perspectives. And that's just um, more of her effort to, to give you this feeling that nothing is really static and that these are kind of almost distinct people. And I find honestly I, I do find very little in common with the Meg sergeant who is not even named in the first story with the character we meet here um, now because it's a first person narration uh, which is kind of ironic right we get this really deep inward look in the first story it's from the third person its uh, narrator very naturalistic in, in in some ways in two we get it from Meg's point of view but it's all really about this guy, Mr. Shear that she works for. And this is just a really really fun story about a a woman, again, I would say young. I, she she's youngish, I, I I presume. Um at least she's she's certainly attractive, she's certainly energetic. Um, so I'm not quite clear on her her age throughout the story. Um but she's working for this guy Mr. Shear who runs this little gallery, right? And the gallery itself is is a bit sketchy to say the least. They, as The story goes on. She learned more and more how just how sketchy it is. Its main income comes from like souvenir dogs, a uh, little trinkets of of dogs that people get. So if you like maybe you like Shelties, so you'll go there and you'll get a a little Sheltie uh, porcelain figure or something painted or whatever, and that's the main income for this. So, but the, he. Mr. Shear, he wants to be a legitimate artist, an art curator, so he spends a lot of his time kind of with high art, buying pieces, buying antiques, and filling up his store, his gallery with those things. For instance, we have uh, this quote here. quote "For Mr. Shear's gallery was unique in one respect. On my first day there, I stared hopefully about at the shabby collection of priest robes, China figurines, clocks, bronzes, carved ivories, old silver, porcelains. And seen only the scrapings of the 59th street auction rooms in a glass case off one corner there were a few garnet chokers some earrings and wrought italian silver and an improbable looking sapphire ring in an out-of-date cloth setting on the walls hung a couple of faded paintings of the hudson river school and some gaudy scenes of venice which i learned later had been signed by mr sheer with an italian name that happened to come into his head Um, so that's our introduction to this store and it, it does seem kind of impressive and we learned that his artistic tastes his his aesthetic tastes are very classical and and very refined um, but and her job is she's she, it's like there's two employees it's, it's meg and this this young black man i i think we get his name somewhere but he's kind of always referred to as the young the young black man and a lot of their job, especially meg's job becomes kind of helping him prop up this facade of this gallery and of his whole persona so what we learn is like really the only source of income for the for the gallery are these sales of these little dogs, these these souvenir dogs. Everything else is on consignment. Everything else is purchased with credit, and he has very very elaborate credit schemes. The whole thing really is a house of cards, um, made up money that he never had, being borrowed and, and, and filtered around. At one point he even gets arrested, and you know and and you know calls for. Like bail money, she doesn't have it, but he gets out of jail like the next day. So somehow he got a hold of that bail money. He probably borrowed it from, from someone. And anyways, that's what the main story is about. It's it's, it's Meg coming to realize just what a fraud her, her employer is, right? But I think it fits into the theme of the novel overall, which is all about the dubiousness of, of identity and, and how we really can't know ourselves day-to-day, year-to-year, event-to-event. We really can't know others either entirely, right? That others out there are fake. And I think there's even a deeper meaning here, if you want to do an economic critique, that perhaps the whole U.S. economy is kind of propped up like this rogues gallery, right? That there's nothing really substantial behind it. It's all buying and selling. It's kind of a critique of consumerism, almost, you know, considering that the gallery itself is a consumer you know is, is a place of consumption right but you know as you peel off the layers of what's actually there there's really nothing there except you know the one thing that people want are the little miniature dogs you know not no not, no one else wants these other things right now i'm not sure how common this is in the art world at the time or today but this is just a wonderful expose of a fraudulent businessman who through sheer will and and persuasion and and Charisma is able to manufacture a, a whole empire, really, of, you know, it's a very unstable one that falls apart. But he is able to construct an empire for a time. Now, plot-wise, what happens is, you know, the business collapses. He, I think he ends up owing Meg a bunch of salaries, a bunch of wages, and he pays back what he can from time to time. Um, but he actually shows up at another gallery he's kind of remade himself I think at this point he's an employee in a gallery but he's able to to kind of reboot his life right and the whole theme here is 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 the false front right it's, it's almost like a it's got some kind of it reminds me of a Phil Dick story of you know one of his mainstream novels and that you know nothing is quite what it seems there's nothing science fiction or mystical about it it's just everyone is kind of you know, of all over the place, right? Maybe we really got to look at Philip Dick in, in this kind of perspective of, of 60s modernity. Maybe Mary McCarthy will teach me new ways to read Philip Dick, who knows? Quote, this is right at the end of the story. Yet Masquerade was life to Mr. Shear. He could not bear to succeed in his own personality any more than an unattractive man can bear to be loved for herself. So he began indirectly unwillingly to try to fail. It was distressing to watch him, for even here he was conforming to the conventions of the businessman's world. This Mr. Shear, who had once hunted danger joylessly down a hundred strange byways, was now walking glumly down the well-trodden road into the jaws of respectable ruin. He had a love affair with his best client's wife, and he played the stock market. Both of these ventures he pursued with a terrible listlessness. He could hardly bother to follow his stocks in the newspaper or to telephone the lady for whom he was risking so much. It was only when his broker sold him out, and when he brought his lady home to her husband with her evening dress wrought side out, that his spirits revived, and he would dwell in the two misfortunes of his old rueful delight. Really great summary of, of this of this really nice character. So, yeah, Rogues Gallery is less about Meg and, and more about this guy, but he's he's the same. He's very much like Meg, just in so far as he's He's constantly changing and morphing, and he's, you know, there, there's a kind of fakeness behind him, right? Now let me, before getting into story three, you know, I, I do want to go back to my feelings about identity. I think I talked about this a bit in the future's female series. I really don't think there's anything behind all the masks we wear. I, I mean, I do think there's instinct, there's nature, to some degree, but not very insignificant. I'm, I think, largely we're the creations of culture. Um, but yeah there's some i'm sure there's some instinct that affects us Um, i'm not one of these jordan peterson fans who thinks you know hierarchy is a result of our our kind of biological you know heritage i I think it's a result of the societies we built up Um, but yeah i think there is probably some some instinct there's a lot of training i think a a lot of what we are is training and that training comes from our culture comes from our, our our literal training in whatever job we come through through our education. There is our habits, certainly, you know, the way we speak, the way we think, uh, our, our, our literal habits, whether it's smoking or you know, drinking or whatever. And then there's a small space for us to wear different masks within that, right? And of you tried to wear different masks, you know, if you play the game or you go to the bar and you're an astronaut or whatever, I've never really tried that, but I imagine it's quite hard to do if you're an actor that's why actors are so few right and it's so hard to be a good actor so there's a little bit of space for us to wear different masks right and some of that mask does come out of the rules we play and but i think that's basically all there is right and i i think that's a liberatory thing in a way because we're not bound by some kind of in, like permanent self um i guess psychologists may disagree with me on this but i don't know i, I think william james more or less has this point of view about the self so I'll stand with him. You know, I, yeah, and I guess at the end of the day, you could say all that together is your inner self. Right. But I just think it's so much a construction. And beyond that, beyond the stuff that is sort of constructed by our upbringing and training and habits is there is space in for freedom. And. And that's what makes it maybe sometimes quite hard to to know people. I think it's also quite hard to know oneself. Right. And I thought about this a lot when I was reading *The Company She Keeps*. So, anyways, let me know what you think about that. If I'm way off base. All right, next, *The Man in the Brooks Brothers Shirt*, Chapter Three. So, this—the vast majority of the story is is set basically in in a in a couple of days on a train, um, and. It's a really nice snapshot into life on the sleeper trains, which I just think is fascinating. I read a novel back in graduate school called Shanghai Express, which is a translation of a 1930s novel um, by a Chinese writer. I forget his name, but it's all about just the life on these trains. I was really kind of interested in there because it was a new technology. By this point in the story, it's old, right? Everyone grew up with trains. It was nothing fancy. But, you know, planes, we travel by planes now, most people, long distance travel and, and you sit there in your chair maybe you have first class you just got a bigger chair right but you're still kind of stuck in your chair there's no life there there's no interaction right? really with your neighbors maybe you talk to the person next to you or something but it's really you're stuck in one place trains weren't that way right you you had um, smoking lounges you had i mean you had in the segregation days, you had to actually like the Jim Crow cars, which you could have moved to, right? And I've read somewhere about um, white people sometimes going to the Jim Crow car for, you know, to have a little bit more fun because the, you know, the, it just, it was, there was more going on there, more more things to talk about and observe. But you have the sleeper cars, which in this case, obviously, is big enough for a, for a tryst. Um, they're not, you know, cramming people in, so... So that kind of gives us some interesting dimension. You have the dining cars, you have various lounges and things, right? So, and you're there for a very, very long time. You're, you're sometimes on the train for days, right? So it's in your interest to interact with other people and get to know them and to make something of the voyage and, and the trip. Right now, we got Meg on this, on this train ride, and she runs into this older man. He's the man in the Brooks Brothers shirt. And he immediately kind of sets his sights on seducing her it's pretty obvious. She knows it. Um, and he pretty much sets up to do it. He's married and she sort of puts on a, she decides to kind of take on this role of the dangerous, uh, secretive, mysterious woman in her effort to kind of play the role, you know, play a certain role in being seduced. And she goes along with it eventually. Right. But, um, she, you know, eventually they're chit-chatting. She talks about politics. He's like a businessman, and she's at this point. This is the first we really ex- are exposed to her politics. She's she's sort of a radical. She's kind of a, she, she works for radical publications and, and does some writing and editing and stuff like that. And so she's on the left. We learn later on in the, in the fifth story that she's uh, a full-blown Trotskyist, And that brings a lot of tensions with the more traditional left in America, which was much more Stalinist. And, and following the Soviet Union, at least the Communist Party was kind of a Stalinist directed party, but the Trotskites of course were critiquing the Soviet Union at the time and Trotsky was kicked out, eventually assassinated by um, by Stalin in South America, was it Mexico, somewhere in, in Latin America, um, but that was a big tension in the left, right, it's something that's very much on Mary McCarthy's mind, even though she's a little flippant about it and, and, and she's Kind of critical of of both sides a little bit. We really see this in the next story, the next novel, The Oasis. It doesn't really matter, though, because it just becomes a point of conversation for them. And it's a bit of a game. And it becomes part of the seduction is to play around with politics and political loyalties and all that. And it's a lot of fun to to see this um, play out. Now, but what happens is she starts to get really drunk. They they share a couple bottles of wine, I think it is. Uh, And he's a rich guy. So he even gives us a tip, like I think a bottle of wine to like the steward or something so he's he's got money um but they're drinking wine and eventually she wakes up in bed next to him and she immediately starts to feel really gross about it and we really have the the drunken one night stand morning after scene done to perfection here i've i've seen this of course in films before i've seen this um you know frankly i've observed this in real life but it's it's done so well here i've never read a uh, kind of a walk of shame story uh, quite as good as this. And and the whole situation is uncomfortable because everyone saw her go in. Even though they're not really friends, they're just acquaintances, but everyone saw her go in there with them, spend the night. If she comes out, I mean, it's, and she's wearing the same clothes. It's it's all that, those cliches of the one night stand, walk of shame stuff. But you're in this confi- relatively confined space of the train cars in the sleeper cars. And it's really, really great. I'll get back to that, but uh, she was meg's sort of attracted to this guy actually and she sees something fascinating about him even though he's a capitalist and he should be the enemy right um she kind of sees him something in like an adventurous frontier almost uh this is from page 64 the library of america version actually she decided it was a combination of provincialism and adventurism that did the trick this man was the frontier though the american frontier had closed she knew forever out somewhere out in Oregon in her father's day, Her father, when the door had shut, had re- remained from the, on the inside. In his youth, he had learned, to her surprise, from some yellow newspaper clippings her aunt had forgotten, an old bureau drawer, drawer, that he had become a kind of wildcat radical full of working man's compensation laws and state ownership utilities. But he had long ago hardened into a corporation lawyer, Eastern style. She remembered how she had challenged him with these clippings, thinking to shame him with the betrayal of ideals, and how calmly he retorted, things were different then. But you fought the railroad, she had insisted. And now you're the lawyer. You had to fight the railroads in those days, he answered innocently. But her aunt had put in with her ineffectual plebeian sentatiousness. Uh, Your father always stands for what is right. But she saw now that her father had honestly perceived no contradiction between the two sets of attitudes, which was a real proof that that it was not he, him he, but so much the times that have changed. So that's the, the paragraph. Now, she's in a way maybe justifying her... Her desire, her her choice, essentially to to sleep with this guy. Um, you know, she does get drunk, but let's yeah, and she does regret it later on. But let's not get into that that too much. Uh, in the story, she's a willing participant in this one night stand from from almost the beginning. But how she kind of justifies this, how her her politics. And this, and this guy, right? And this, this how she could be with the businessman through her father, and her who, through this man, her this other man in her life, change from a radical to a corporate lawyer, right? But the times change, right? Of course, they do change, and and the political center changes, and the political issues of the day change, and you know this, you know, I guess the old cliche about the boomers, right? I guess McCarthy is more Silent Generation, but. You know the cliche of the boomers is that they, they they kind of play with radicalism in their youth, but as soon as they grow up, they became you know yuppies and people living in the suburbs, driving two cars, and and totally serving the system in every way. Right? So she's she's talking about this that I mean she's kind of suggesting that her own politics is out of out of out of touch with with reality, but you know this kind of this I question about who this man is deep down, this man in the Brooks Brothers shirt, comes up the morning after when she tries to, again, in in a very different mental state and a very different um, position, tries to justify what she has done and and what she can make of it. So anyways, as you expect, the next morning is kind of horrible. There's even a moment where like, like she loses one of her garters and she has to kind of like safety pin it together or something uh so that's kind of a you know it's such a typical uh again it sounds like such a cliche to me but i don't know if it came from this story um of the disheveled clothing right It's such a big part of the of the, of the walk of shame now, i don't think she technically gets the walk of shame so much because she's um she, she like is she kind of overblows it but you just feel this, this guilt and disgust and 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 kind of horror of what she did the night before, right? Now back to like how the politics of this man become important. Is she she starts to imagine like maybe she can make something out of this, right? Now she she's betraying another man in doing this. She's actually going on a tra- on traveling to see like a new fiance or something, right? So she's she's kind of betrayed that guy and that marriage isn't going anywhere. That that relationship clearly is not going anywhere. Another failed relationship for poor Meg. Um, but you start to think like maybe I can convert this guy, maybe I can make him a, a philanthropist, or maybe I can make him, um, a, you know, reform him, or make him a leftist again. And right, but nothing really happens in that. It just, you know, it's just fantasies in her mind of somehow coming to terms with this. But you know, I don't want to like read this at length, but it's just so well done. How you know Meg's emotions in this this morning are just done perfectly, perfectly. I think. So good, so good. Um, so, anyways, uh, they have sex again in the morning, and then he talks her into getting a bath. And you know, I guess you can get baths and trains in those days. Um, and she, so she gets a bath, and then she comes back, and they they talk together, and finally they they split up because he gets. I think he gets off the train, and you know, he he, he kind of confesses he's starting to fall for her and fall in love with her, and she says something very clever about it, like. You know, it's because you're falling in love with me that I can say bye to you or something. It's it's kind of an interesting pirouette, but ends up kind of being kind of meaningless. Um, now, here's my question for for the audience. Um, now, this as it is is a one night stand, right? But if you run into someone later on and you have a coffee and you t- and you chit chat, right? Is, is it still a one night stand? I mean. If you take some effort to sustain the relationship sometime afterwards, does that change the nature of, of what you did? Or is it still just a, a one night stand? You know, Obviously, I, I know a, a pure one night stand would be you sleep with someone, you never see them again. right? But if you do run into them again, if they stay in your circle, if you keep them in your, your cell phone connect and you run into them and you have a conversation, does that change the nature of that, that first night? Or is it still? just for that window, is that what matters, right? Because at that morning, you didn't intend to see them again. Is that what makes it a one-night stand? Or is it when you overall look at your history of your life, is that what makes something a one-night stand or not? Um, I don't know if that's on, on Mary McCarthy's mind here, but um, you know, if you look at Wikipedia, or right, even if you look at the introduction that the Library of America gives, they call it a one-night stand. But she meets this guy later on, so some months later, they, they meet up. I think it's in Cleveland. Maybe it's her, I think her way back. Um, they meet up in Cleveland. And they have some time together. And he gives her gifts. And I think they meet one or two more times. I think he goes to see her. It, maybe it's in New York. And, and anyways, the relationship fizz, fizzled out. He loses interest. She realizes he's losing interest. She ends up breaking up with her fiancé. And the thing doesn't go anywhere, right? But there was a due diligence, I think. And that's why I want to, you know, in some sense, you know, not have this, this, what happened on the train car to be seen as totally venal. Um, Not that one night stands are bad in any way. I'm I'm totally, I totally, I'm down with them. Whoever, you know, if that's, if that's what you want. But, you know, that, that kind of guilt, that, the kind of, the way she feels certainly is humiliation and, and. she feels gross about it the next day, right? But is, is these like other meetings are just ways of kind of atoning for that and kind of uh, changing the memory of that? Or is it, you know, or was there really something possible here that she really tried for with this man from the Brooks Brothers, in the Brooks brother shirt? Um, I don't know. The last part of this story actually is just this telegram she gets from him and when she tells him that her father died, or he got news, he read the butchewares and found out her father died. And he sent a, a, no, a nice note saying, you've lost the best friend you'll ever have. And that's the end of their their relationship. But really, really great story. A, a wonderful story. I'd read this one again in a heartbeat if um, if I have time. Um, next, we have the genial host. This is the fourth story, and the last one I'll we'll look at today. So this story, uh, Meg is basically invited to a, a house party with this guy, Flawman, and you know what? This reminded me of a Willa Cather story I read like a year ago when I did the earlier series on Cather, uh, where there was these, these rich people who were kind of keeping a, what would have parties where they invite famous people there because they were like better than, better, more interesting than his own life. That's really what I was reminded of with this Flawman guy, that he's just kind of a loser. A, a douchey guy, and Meg does talk with him a little bit, but he insults her about his, her drinking at one point, and, and she gets really offended by this. But this guy is not that; he's very just banal. He's just a boring guy, um, to be honest. But he likes to surround himself with interesting ideas, right? And this is something that rich people can can do. Um, listen to this. Each of Floffman's guests had been selected, as it were, for his allegorical possibilities, and every dinner was presented as a morality play in which the art and science, wealth and poverty, business, literature, sex and scholarship, vice and virtue, Judaism and Christianity, Stalinism and Trotskyism—all the antipodes of life were personified and yet abstract. Tonight there was John Peterson, who stood for criticism and also for official communism. There was Jim Burzelheimer, a bright young man in one of the great banking houses, who represented capitalism, and his wife, who painted pictures. And was going to have a baby. And was there for both art and motherhood. There was Henry Slater, the publisher. Very flirtatious with a shock of prematurely white hair. Who, had, who was sex. And his wife. An ash blonde woman with straight bang. Who kept a stable full of houses in. Had no opinions and was sport. There was, a grown, there, was a woman, there was a woman psychoanalyst. Who got herself up in a Medici gown. And used a cigar holder. There was a pretty English girl named Leslie. Who worked on time. Magazine. There was a young Jew, Martin Erdman, who did not drink. There was Floffman himself, who stood for trademarks and good living, and you, who stood for literature and the Fourth International. After dinner, there might be others a biologist and his wife, a man who was high up in the newspaper guild. On and on. Oh, by the way, the, the first story was in third person narration. The second story was first person, from Meg's point of view. The third story back to the, the she we're back to she, we're Back to the, the, the narrator of the first story is back this one the narrator is you so or the narrator uses the, the pronoun you to refer to Meg so it's like an outside observer talking about talking to Meg about her, her own life which is bizarre I, I know this is all possible it's you learn it right in, when you learn literature in grade school or whatever right that you have the three main the three different types of perspective but you never actually see this the second person narration uh this is, uh, maybe i've come across it before of course in short segments you do you know commands and all that but you know dungeons and dragons i guess you, you get that all the time um you know the dm always has to use you right you see this or that right that's the narration we have here we got the dungeon masters narration which is just a really fun experiment in how one looks upon oneself in a situation right it's it's you're being told what's happening to you not not uh, not from an outside perspective and not from your own eyes now what's I think the point in this story is how one like we got this set up this Flöffman is trying to set up tension and conflict and conversation right you know like if you're starting a book club right you want to have many different points of view as possible so you can have conversation and debate it seems that's what he's trying to do here he's trying to articulate in his social circle, in, the, in his parties, the major debates of the time, right? and that's what we're told. Um, but it's like, what is Meg's ideology, right? And what, how does her liqui- the liquidity we've observed in her life come to terms with this situation? I think that's what she's trying to get at here a little bit. And here we've got the narrator. Again, it's that second person narration. And here was the striking effect produced by Flem's dinners. You truly felt yourself turning into an abstraction of your beliefs and your circumstances. Contradictions you had known in yourself melted away, challenged by its opposite, your personality hardened into something unequivocal and defiant, your banners were flying. All of the guests felt this. If you asserted your Trotskyism, your poverty, your sexual freedom, the expectant mother radiated her pregnancy, the banker basked in his reactionary convictions. And John Peterson forgot about Montaigne and grew pales and El Greco Saint in his defense of Spanish democracy. Everybody for the moment knew exactly who he was. Floffman had given you all your identity cards, just as your mother will assign personalities to each and her brood of children. Jack is hard working and steady, Billy's a flash in a pan. Never can finish anything he starts. Mary's dreamy, Helen is practical. While it lasts, the feeling was delightful, and the dinner table—everyone was heady with peculiar, almost lawless excitement, like dancers in a costume ball. It was only when you caught a glimpse of the author of your un- of your happiness ensconced there, so considerate, so unobtrusive, at the head of the table—that your convictions wavered. End quote. Now, this is a, wonder- a wonderful look at like the politi- like the political discourse in in modern America, right? This growing divisiveness, right? You know when you. When you just talk to someone about an issue, about politics even, you, you just have a conversation about it, right? But if someone introduces you as the, the communist and, and, and the guy next to you is the banker, of course you're gonna fight, right? You, you kind of, you, you're put in camps, right? And of course that's what we have in our political discourse these days. People are put into camps and the result of that is they harden, their positions harden, but they're not accurate. That harden, hardening doesn't make it more true. I think that's a, that's a big point of Mary McCarthy's novel here, the company she keeps is, is that hardening one's identity doesn't make that identity truer. It, it, it actually makes it less true, right? And in fact, we are conflicted, we are changing, we are, we are protein, uh, we are evolving, we, we are contradictory at times. And that's the true nature of who we are. It's not the, the solid form that other people may see us as, right? like the Trotskits, for instance, right? You know, the poor girl, the sexual libertine, the the different adjectives, the different characteristics given to Meg in this this story. Um, The fact that it's being told by the second person narration, I think, makes it more powerful, right? Because it's it's someone else talking about who you are, right? Which is a whole thing that's being kind of criticized in that passage and in the story overall. So, yeah, although this story didn't grab me as much as the other three, um, maybe it was at least sexy. I mean, one and three are literally about sex. The second one is kind of a but a really interesting bloke who has this weird shop and, and all this. Um, this one' just like it struck me at first it as it's like a dinner party, but as you go into it a little bit more, you find a lot more interesting stuff going on in the background of that. so um yeah, I, I think you know, hopefully. I've given you some tools to think about and use to understand uh, the company she keeps. And if you haven't read this novel, or, you know, it's, apparently it's not one of her more famous works. It's, it's her first novel. You know, I do think it's, it's worth looking at. Um, um, it's themes in there come up later on in the Oasis, certainly, especially on, especially that one I just mentioned, how hardening political opinions, when you get put in factions, it's harder to budge right it's harder to to be authentic about who we are because who we are inside is pro protein that's really the most powerful theme but it's got so many great set pieces uh the one night stand the the confrontation with her husband in the first chapter about her affair is great um the stuff with mr Shear, wonderful i mean the whole thing is, is really a great novel um one of the the best, I think maybe my favorite so far in this whole series on on women writers that I've looked at so far. So I was really glad to pick up Mary McCarthy's The Company She Keeps. I'm not done talking about it. We have two more stories to look at. That will be in the very next episode. Uh, We'll finish up The Company She Keeps and work our way through this this volume and hopefully this and the next volume because I have both of them, the second volume of Mary McCarthy's writings, which will look at her writings from the 60s and 70s. So anyways, that's it for now. If you've read The Company She Keeps or if you have any questions or thoughts about what I've said, please uh, leave your comments below or send me an email at 100 pagescastgmailcom at gmail.com. I will see you next time with my conclusion to The Company She Keeps. Look over the oceans, look over the lands, look over the leaders with the blood on their hands and open your eyes and see what they do. When they knock over their friend, they're knocking for you. With their knock on the door, knock on the door. Here they come to take one more. With their knock on the door, knock on the door. Here they come.